On May 13, 1938, was the year that Congress designated November 11th as veter- actually it was Armistice Day originally, and it was dedicated to honoring those who served in World War I. Uh, later, under Eisenhower in 1954, they changed it to where November 11th was uh, a day that the government said that we would honor veterans, that we would honor those who served in, in, of all wars. And so in 1954, November 11th became an official holiday in honor of veterans of all wars. And so we are happy to honor those this morning who are here and extended family. But, you know, when you think about a veteran, a veteran is someone who served, uh, honor, was in the military, and received an honorable discharge. If they did not serve honorably, they were giving a, given a what? A dishonorable discharge. And so veterans are soldiers who are no longer active. I should say good soldiers get an honorable discharge and bad soldiers get a dishonorable discharge. But when we become Christians, when we become, when, when Jesus comes into our life and we are saved, we are born again, uh, I don't think it's any stretch, and the Bible has these uh, analogies, that we become a part of the service of our commander-in-chief. We become a soldier uh, in, uh, under the authority of our commander-in-chief. And so it's with that thought that we look at just a couple of verses from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Now, uh, before we look, that's okay, keep it up there. Before we look at it, remember we, in Acts, we looked at a lot about the Apostle Paul. We spent a lot of time talking about the Apostle Paul. And in 2 Timothy, that is the, at least that we have, or that the Lord saw under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to uh, leave us the last uh, recorded letter that is from Paul before he died. He is in prison in Rome when he writes this uh, second letter to Timothy, and it is the last recorded correspondence that we have prior to his death. And you could easily say that Paul was a soldier for Christ, wasn't he? We saw in the book of Acts, I mean, he faced a lot of battles, right? He faced a lot of battles, a lot of uh, skirmishes, a lot of uh, enemies that were against him, and he fought not as uh, the Bible talks about, not according to flesh and blood, but he fought spiritual battles and spiritual forces, as he would write about. But when it comes to Second Timothy, we see uh, the letter of Second Timothy has more of a of, of a sound of an old soldier, an old seasoned soldier, who is giving counsel and is writing a young recruit, which is his son in the faith, Timothy. And so 2 Timothy chapter 2, 3 and 4 this morning uh, reads this in the English Standard Version. Paul says to his son uh, in the faith, Timothy, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his or her aim is to please the one who enlisted them. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on this word this morning. Father, we thank you for, Lord, the truth of your word. We thank you for the diligence of the Apostle Paul as one who was an honorable soldier, Lord, in the cause of Christ. And this morning, as we honor uh, our veterans, Lord, may we again realize that we belong to you. We are 
uh, conscripts. We are been drafted, Lord, into your service. And Lord, with that thought, may we take encouragement from your holy word this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is pleasing in your sight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice with me a commitment that as we look at this verse, a commitment to three actions of an honorable soldier in life that we are expected to have if we uh, are going to be honorable vets in the king's service for eternity. Number one, notice with me, an honorable soldier endures hardship. Endures hardship. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Now, I said earlier, I never was in the military. I played army as a kid. That's about the extent of my military service. And when I think about us shooting real BB guns at each other, I, I think what was going through our brain, obviously nothing. But uh, we did all sorts of that. But that was a big part, and we'd go out and play all day and, and do that type of thing. But when a person, I know this from my brother and friends and different ones, my dad, that when they were in boot camp, I said, what was it like? Some of you may have this memory. That first morning... When you woke up, <laughs> and I assume you weren't woken up with a little, come on now, let's get up. There was a very, I would assume, a very uh, rude awakening to a new reality that was in your life. You were now the property of Uncle Sam. And so boot camp was a way to transform you and give you a, 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 an immediate uh, reality dose that this military commitment that you now are in, legally bound, right? The United States Constitution, you got it. You're not going anywhere. You might cry to mama, call her on the phone, but guess what? You're in, right? And so boot camp was a way for you immediately to experience the hardship that comes with your commitment of military service. I think about maybe my brother talking about that 4 a.m. first awakening that morning, and the immediate thought is, what have I done? Now, he enlisted because he knew his number. If you know, remember Generations of the Draft, he, his number was going to be, what, I guess a high number, and so he would get a better deal if he enlisted than waiting for the draft. At least that was the theory. But soldiers endure hardships because being a soldier is a demanding way of life. We want them, right? We want them to be trained to have an endurance of hardships, right? We don't want them just you know, being just uh, willy-nilly about whether they're going to do this or not, if their job is to protect us and to protect our nation, then we want them to have a vigorous training in hardships. And so when a person uh, joins the military as best that we can, and I don't know if recruiters are always, uh, you know, realistic about, uh, I know what uh, some of you may have been a recruiter at uh, different times, but soldiers, are ex uh, they're exposed to danger, they're exposed to fear, maybe their own insecurities, performance expectations. Are they going to be able to master this? Are they going to be able to, to get through this uh, period of time? They're exposed to threatening elements of life. I remember my brother talking about going through a 
POW training in boot camp. And they treated, I don't know how long it was, a week or two weeks or whatever it was, but they literally were treated as POWs with as much harshness as they legally could get away with. And it was to prepare them for the potential hardship that may come uh, by being a prisoner of war. Now, to kind of switch gears as one who has been brought into the uh, service of Christ, that we should likewise not be surprised when we endure hardships too. Uh, the Bible's pretty clear on that, that in God's service, if we can use that soldier analogy, because that's what Paul used, he said, as a good soldier, there in our passage, 1 Peter 4.12 uh, gives us some insight here. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. You're like, wait a minute. That evangelist told me that if I gave my life to Jesus, I would never have a problem again. Life would just be wonderful and rosy, and I'm not even a day into this Christian life, and already I've got more trouble than I had two days ago when I was uh, outside of this. Uh, Peter says, don't be surprised. Jesus said in John 16, 33, he said, expect hardships when he said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace, but in the world, say in the world, in the world where we live, in Jesus I've got peace, but in the world where I live, on the outside, he says, you will have tribulation. But he says, be of good cheer, be happy because he says, I've overcome the world. When you are born again, when you are saved, when you come into the, being a soldier for Christ, you are not removed. You, you don't, you, you don't, there's not the absence of hardship. In fact, sometimes you experience more hardship. Because, you know, the Bible talks about that we've been, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You could even say it this way. We changed teams. And now we are on the opposing team of this world, of Satan and his armies, and now we are on the, 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 the team of light and the gospel of Jesus. And guess what? That makes us an immediate target. So we're going to have hardships that come with spiritual attacks, but we just have hardships that come with living in a fallen world. That's just part of it. And Jesus says, Look, expect it, but you're in me, and, and though you're in me, uh, by my power and my strength, you'll be able to navigate the tribulation in this life. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4 that just as pain and suffering and even the death of those who served are not in vain, neither is our suffering... Paul said, therefore, we do not lose heart. You ever just sometimes just feel like you're just ready to lose heart? You just, you just feel like you just can't. But he said, though outwardly we are wasting away. I, I, I see that every morning. That, that verse is, I get that verse every morning. I see the wasting away that has occurred from the, the, next, the, following, from the following day. But seriously, though outwardly we are wasting away, meaning our bodies are uh, are going the way of age, but yet inwardly, he's talking to believers, 
He said, inwardly we are what? Being renewed day by day. But notice the language here, and this is coming from Paul. Paul was not immune, obviously, from the hardship. He calls this for our light and momentary troubles. Now, this is a guy who's been beaten, dragged outside of cities, left for dead. This is a guy who's been in prison on trumped-up false charges. And if he says, our light and momentary troubles, but what is he looking? He's putting those things in perspective to what? Eternity. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving. Do you realize your troubles are working for you? Are achieving for us what? An eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Probably we will not grasp that until we are in the presence of Christ that we see how God truly was what he wrote in Romans 8.28, the God who works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And if you know your Bible, sometimes his purposes involve some hardships that we have to go through. Sometimes those hardships, can we be honest, they're, they're ones we jumped into. They're ones that we did. We, we can't blame the devil. You know, we can't blame, we, we got it, we own it. But then there are some things that come at us that God has allowed because he knows that as we walk through these things, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, his presence. And, and I'll be honest with you, it is oftentimes that it's through those hardships, it's through those valleys when I experience his presence in a much greater and realistic way in my life. Because see, when things aren't, you know, going bad, when things are going well and I'm really not enduring anything, you know what, I I'm kind of feel like I'm managing this thing pretty good by my own, Right? I'm pretty good. I can handle this. But it's when he reminds me that I am not handling this. I've never been able to handle it. And I'm going through this trial. I'm going through this situation where I just have to say, God, you know all things. Remember Peter when Jesus asked him, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? And finally, what did he say? Lord, you know all things. Like, <laughs> I don't know what the right answer is. You know all things. And sometimes we just pray, God, you know all things. That means, God, you know all about this situation. And as I was praying with somebody today, I said, always remember, God is always at work. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He's always on the job. He's always at work. You may not see it. We may not see it. But he's always at work on our behalf, and really for his purpose and his glory, and we're part of that. Paul reminds Timothy, and I love this, that soldiers do not endure alone. Look at 2 Timothy 2.3. I think it'll be on the screen in the New Living Translation. I like different translations. Uh, they, they bring out sometimes different uh, nuances. But notice what he says, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What is he saying there when he says along with me? He says, in other words, that I'm experiencing this, but you're not alone, Timothy. You're not alone. Uh, much of, of the purpose of boot camp is to break down your individuality. They're not looking for free thinkers, 
that's discouraged. <laughs> They're not looking for freelancers that thought, well, I know what you said, uh, Sergeant, but I thought. Now, that, they would probably remind you that was your first mistake, you thought. You are to have a singularity of thinking of what they tell you. And, uh, you know, they will tell you what you're to think. They'll tell you what to eat, and they'll tell you everything else that's involved in your life because you are, but in, in the positive sense, it is to create a unit. You know, you can have, even in a church, you've heard me say this, you can have unity in a church, but you don't, that doesn't necessarily mean that a church functions as a unit. You can have unity. We have unity in Jesus. I think we're all probably on the same page there, right? We don't, but it doesn't mean that we're operating as a unit, as a body. And I'm not talking about some cultic uniformity, but, but where there's, there's that commonality of purpose and vision. Paul is saying, suffering along with me, he's saying, Timothy, look, you're not alone. I'm with you. I understand. You know, it's a great thing when you're going through a troubled season and somebody comes along, God puts them in your life, and they say, I know exactly what you're going through. Because a lot of people will say, hey, I know, and there's times I'll start to say that because, you know, that's the Christianese thing. Hey, I know, I understand. Then I'll stop and say, I have no idea. I have no idea. So let me just stop. I have no idea, but I'm going to pray, okay? But then there are things that I've gone through and you've gone through where I can talk to somebody and I can say, just stop. I, I know exactly what you're I, I, I can I can speak for you because I know the emotions and the heart of what you're saying there. There's something very comforting when we know that we're not alone, right? We know that somebody uh, is, 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 is with us. Somebody is, is, is in our, in our, um, in our boat. And let me just give a plug here. That's why I think it's so important uh, to be partnered with a local church. I like the word partnership rather than membership. Membership kind of sounds like you're joining the gym or you're, you know, joining whatever. But a partnership, that's what he told the Philippians. You, he called them partners in the gospel. Partnership is being involved. That, 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 what is the picture of the church that Paul gave us? He gave a picture of one body, a body, a singular body that had many different uh, aspects. It's like our body. We have hands, toes, feet, head, all those things. But we are one body. We are a unit, the church. And if you are a part of a body where you're investing yourself in that body, you know and you're with people that have got your back that you're not alone when you endure hardship. What, look at 1 Peter 5, 8, 9. It'll be on the screen. Peter says, be sober, be, be vigilant, uh, or be sober, uh, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls a uh, around like a roaring lion uh, looking for somebody, for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know, look at this, that the family of believers, I like that. What does he say? He says, look, resist him. We know the devil's after you. We know these attacks, but stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is un undergoing the same kind of sufferings. That is, that we are not alone, that we 
have others that are with us. Paul says, enduring hardships is the mark of a good soldier. James 1.12 said, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, perseveres, endures under trial, because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. Good soldiers who earn an honorable discharge and become veterans, uh, that status, it's not ones who run away from hardship or potential for pain, but rather those who have stood under adversity, who have endured hardship. Notice, secondly, an honorable soldier not only endures hardship, but an honorable soldier exercises focus. Exercises focus. Look at verse 4 of 2 Timothy 2. He says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. The New Living Translation says, Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life. It literally means getting uh, uh, tangled or tied up. Uh, Roman soldiers, interestingly, in this period of time, Roman soldiers, uh, if they were in the military, if they were uh, in, conscripted in the military, they were not allowed to marry until their enlisted time had ended so that they wouldn't be distracted by the affairs that naturally come with having a family. They wanted them to exercise singular focus. You know, to use the analogy of boot camp, which I use pretty freely for somebody that's never experienced it, so just bear with me. But you know, if you're, you know, you, that first morning they say, you know, look, I, I can be here till noon today, but I've got a job uh, down at racetrack that I work from 12 to 4, so I, I'll have to go off base, but I'll be back. It's not going to work that way. You know, you, you're not running a, a multi-level uh, business, you know, in the military, I mean, you know what I'm saying, man, I know there's all the different things, but I'm just saying that they want you to be focused. They want you to be singularly focused on the task that is hand, at hand. And if you are distracted, you cannot be helpful. And so, some restrictions that you might would say, well, I just don't know why we have to do that. I don't know why we got to do that. I don't know why we have to do the, this order this way and why we have to make the bed. I don't understand, blah, blah, blah. Well, you better not say that too loud. You better just keep that to yourself of why you might have, you know, 15, 20 minutes to eat and you better be out of there and done whether you're finished. You know, they're like, I don't understand. No, you are given a task because they want you to be singularly focused. They want you to exercise that you are a soldier and you are not your own. Uh, I, I thought this was interesting, talking about restrictions, that sometimes you think, well, I don't know why, that, why that's a restriction. Uh, as I was preparing this message, the other, I guess it was on the 7th, on Thursday, I read this report that I guess this past Thursday, the United States Marine Corps uh, changed the restriction where... Uh, the men were now allowed to carry umbrellas for the first time in their 200-year history. Men. I think women could, could carry small ones. Uh, it says, prior to the recent updates and uniform regulations, women in the Marines were allowed to use umbrellas, but the men were not. 
and they changed that rule. Umbrellas, listen, here's their reasoning. Here's why that was restricted. <coughs> Umbrellas were not allowed uh, to be carried by the men because it, it would be a hindrance in saluting. The rule for women stipulated that umbrellas, which had to be all black, must be carried in the left hand so that the hand salute can be properly rendered. You say, well, I done. That sounds stupid. Well, you know what? They wanted to make sure. You know what where their focus was? That when you need to salute an officer or commander, guess what? You had no hindrances, even if it was a, an umbrella. They would say, men, you're going to stand and get drenched in the rain because we don't care. What we do care about is the making sure that that right hand comes up quickly and you salute in a proper way, and we don't want anything in your hand or on your body that would hinder that. You see, they have restrictions for their own purpose, just the way the kingdom of God has uh, restrictions. And so Christians, we've got to be aware of the danger of losing our focus to the mission and purpose that God has called us to do. Now, there's one part in which we are all on singular mission, right? We all are called to glorify God with our lives. We're all called to be a part of the Great Commission in and, and advancing the message of Christ in our generation, in our world. There are certain things that we all have, and then there's other things that by calling and giftedness that God uh, gives us some restrictions to because that's part of our calling. Look at 2 Peter 2.20. Peter said this. He said, If they escape the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again, notice the language, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. He's saying, look, there are things that will so entangle you that they will affect your your usefulness in the kingdom of God. There's not a one foot in the culture in the sense of our, our, um, our ethics and one foot in the kingdom of God. We're called to be all in for Christ. That is what our, we are to be focused on. You remember in uh, a character that Paul names in 2 Timothy 4.10, at the end when Paul is lamenting, he says about this man by the name of Demas, and he says, Demas loved this world and has deserted me. He had a companion by the name of Demas. And I looked up, I thought, well, really, how valuable was Demas? And there's interesting, in Colossians 4.14, Paul sends greetings to the church at Colossae, and he says, I send you greetings from Luke and from Demas. So Demas wasn't just, you know, just, I mean, he was somebody that was a companion to Paul. He was somebody that Paul put on the same par with Luke. In fact, in Philemon 124, he calls Demas my fellow worker. But what does it say about Demas? He loved this world. He lost what? He lost focus. Luke A14 speaks about as they go their way, talking about the parable of the soils, they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. I, I believe there are people who, they're going to go to heaven, they're saved, they love Jesus, but they never mature in the Lord. Why? Because they're so entangled in the stuff of this world. They're so entangled in the things of this life. They can never get focus on what it is that God has purposed for their life. Paul told Timothy earlier in the first letter, 
1 Timothy 6.10, some people, talking about people that get distracted out of focus, some people eager for money have wondered, that's not wonder like I wonder where I'm going to eat lunch today, uh, wandered from the faith. They've, they've, they've gone AWOL and pierced themselves with what? Many griefs. They've lost focus. They've lost that singular focus. What is the remedy of that? The writer of Hebrews gives us a great remedy when the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on who? All right, eight of you said that. Let us fix our eyes on, yeah, there you go. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And it's uh, kind of paraphrase it a little bit or broke it down. Who endured the cross, consider him who endured such opposition, hardship from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do I look to my friend, my neighbor? Do I look to the news? Heaven forbid, I'm looking to the news. Do I look to what's... No, I fix my eyes on Jesus. And you know what? When I begin to feel that sense of drift, you know that feeling? That sense of drift, that sense of that wandering off the, the ranch a little bit. You know what happens is I'm not, my eyes are not fixed on Jesus. My eyes are not, I'm not, I'm not just staring at a cross or something. I'm just saying that there's a singularity in your life that you are here and you've been birthed and born, not only physically but spiritually, for the purpose of Christ. And that when I begin to get discouraged, I take my eyes off Jesus. You know, we use that analogy of old Peter when he stepped out on the water. Right, And you know how that ended. It says when he began to look down and realize, wait a minute, I shouldn't be walking on water. What did he do? He took his eyes off Christ. And what happens every time we do, that's when we'll stumble. That's when we'll just, we'll, we'll just sink. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Did you all cut the air off in here? My goodness. Let's, let's, we, we got it paid for another month, so let's turn it on. All right? Um, good soldiers who know how to be honorable veterans, know how to stay focused on mission. Let me tell you a story about a guy, and I came across this story, and I just thought it was so good I had to share it. This guy uh, by the name of Harold Huggins. Harold Huggins. You've never heard of Harold Huggins, but you're going to hear something about this World War II vet. Harold Huggins was from Albany, Illinois, and he was a veteran of 10 major campaigns in World War II, and he was the last survivor of his battalion. Harold and his buddy, Mac McLean, of Marysville, California, were best friends in the Army. They served together at Anzio Beach, Italy, which if you know your World War II history, that was one of the bloodiest scenes in World War II. Mac, his buddy, had a premonition that he would, make it out, that he would not make it out of that battle alive. So he gave his friend Harold some mementos. He gave him a belt, some photos, and said, Give this to my sister. Tell her that I love her, and you can even give her a kiss for me. Well, Harold promised that if anything happened to his buddy Mac, he would do what he was asked. And one day later, Mac was killed in an artillery barrage. After the war, Harold looked for Mac's sister, but he never found her until Harold's daughter sent out some emails to various veteran groups. Some California vets found Mac's sister, Grace, whose last name had changed when she got married. So on Thursday, August 2nd, 
2001 at the place where his buddy Max's name was engraved in marble at the Veterans Memorial in Marysville, California. Harold Huggins kept the promise he had made 57 years earlier. He met Max's sister for the very first time, gave her the kiss that Mac asked him to deliver as he turned over the mementos from his fallen friend. I love that. You know why? Because that's a picture of an old soldier who wouldn't give up for his buddy and looking after his buddy's lost sister. There was a sense that Harold was a man on a mission and he had a focus throughout his entire life to complete that mission. We need to have the focus to stay focused on Christ and what God has called us to do. I love what Paul, again, wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, a few verses down from our text. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to those who have loved his appearing. Paul could say I'm finished. I fought the good fight. Now, I don't know about you, but thankfully I haven't gotten in any as an adult. But in kid days, I did get into some fights. I didn't always win the fights, but I, in fact, I remember John Dubois. He will go down in my memory for eternity. And John Dubois was one of those kids that, for whatever reason, kids just get me. You know, we get, we, kids are bad sometimes, right? I know not your kids, but, you know, other Victory's kids and the Kathleen Baptist, those kids, not our kids, right? And I don't know, one day, I think I may have told you this, one day I was just messing with John, picking on him, and you know what John did? John reached around and put his fist through my face. I never teased John Dubois again. In fact, this is what men do. We became best friends. Now, see, women, they'll be, you know, eternal enemies. Guys, you know, they go out and have a drink and become friends and buddies, right? They get in a brawl and, hey, yeah, you know, what are we mad about? What are we fighting about? You know, what, what is a good fight? A good fight is the fight you win. That's a good fight. Paul says, I fought the good fight. He's in jail. Why could he say, I fought a good fight? Because he knows that his victory has been secured by Christ, that he said, my fight was not with all these people. My fight was in enduring, and my focus in my fight was completing the mission that Jesus had given to me. He finished the mission. You know, I love the hymn I was thinking about this morning. Scribbled down some of the words. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And the second stanza says, the world behind me, the cross... That's where the victory is, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. I look forward to the words that Jesus said in Matthew 25, 23, where he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear those words? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, and I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So an honorable soldier endures hardship exercises focus, and last, an honorable soldier esteems authority. Look at 2 Timothy 2.4, the last part. He said, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits 
Since his aim, his aim is what? To please the one who enlisted him. The uh, CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, says that he seeks to please the commanding officer. Jesus is our commanding officer. He's the one that we want to please. Uh, in New Testament times, Roman generals, that they often recruited their own soldiers so that one's commanding officer was likely the very, uh, the very person who convinced that soldier to enlist. They had that kind of relationship. So as Christians, as believers, we've been enlisted into the army of Christ, if we could say it that way, by Christ himself who is our commander-in-chief. He is our authority. We've got to esteem his authority. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 16? He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, that you should be productive. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he said, you are not your own. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't belong. Just like when you came into the natural, the, the, the uh, U.S. military, you don't belong to yourself anymore. We'll tell you where you're going to go, how long you're going to stay, because you belong to the United States government. We belong to a much greater authority, as wonderful and as great as our government is, we belong to a much higher authority. And if there's ever a day when this authority of our country demands that we bow before it instead of bowing before the kingdom of God, you know where your choice is to be. The apostles were put in that position where they said, we must obey God rather than men. But we honor the authority that is over us. How do we esteem our authority for Jesus as our commander? It's two, three things. First Thessalonians 2, 4, we are not trying to please men but God. As long as you're trying to please everybody, make them happy, you can't please God. Sometimes you're going to have to obey God, and guess what? Not everybody's going to understand your decision or why you do what you do or the choice that you made. Our aim is to please God. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, If I was still trying to please men, I cannot or would not be a servant of Christ. You can't buy, again, you can't be worried about what somebody thinks and trying to please and do godly things and trying to follow Christ. You might isolate yourself, but why are you doing that? You're doing it because you are under the authority of the commander-in-chief, Jesus. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says, we make it our goal. We make it our goal. To do what? To please him. To please him. That's not... Paul's writing to believers. He's not trying to work for your salvation. First of all, just make sure you understand the only way you can please God is to be in Christ. Colossians 3.3 says that my life is hidden with Christ in God. I cannot be any more pleasing to the Father except when I'm wrapped up in Jesus. So when the Father looks at me, guess what I want him to see? I want him to see me wrapped up in Jesus. My life is hidden with Christ in God. Remember what he said of his son? This is my beloved son in whom I am what? So therefore, if I'm hidden in him, 
What is, what is that for me? He's pleased with me. You didn't get extra brownie points because you came today. I hate to disappoint you. And you didn't get a gold star because you put, you know, a buck in the offering, you know. No, you're, you're, you can't get it. If you're a Christian and you've been born again, you can't get any more pleasing to the Father than you are right now in Him. You can't earn any more pleasing stuff, whatever that is. But we make it our goal that if we love Him... You see, that's why the gospel of grace shatters the legalism because it isn't out of dutiful uh, work that I'm trying to just drudge through the commandments and the, the ways of Christ... It's because of the love that has been given to me in Christ that it's my goal. Just like you want to please your spouse or somebody that you love who's done, you, you look forward to ways that you can show your gratitude. So that becomes our goal to please Him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it, eternity, we're going to be looking to please our commander in chief. You get the idea? Men and women, we are under the authority and command of Jesus. Our goal is to esteem his authority by living a life that is pleasing to him, obeying his word, following him every day. So how do we please Christ? How do we, if we want to use the analogy, how do we become, remain honorable vets in service for the Lord? First, we please him by allowing him to recruit us into his family and live our lives with him as a commander-in-chief. If you've not made that commitment to Christ, this is a great time to do that. There's nothing keeping you from following Christ than your own pride and your own will. Secondly, we please him by enduring hardships Instead of giving up when things get rough, we're not going to abandon Christ just because we're going through some rough waters. And we please Him by retaining our focus on Him, singular focus that our goal is to please Him and fulfill the mission. We all have different callings. We all have different gifts that He's given to the body. But there's one calling and one mission that He has given every generation, and that's to go into all the world and tell people about the gospel of Jesus. Are we, is our generation going to be faithful to that? Are we going to be faithful to doing that? Well, if we're going to be pleasing to Him and be on mission, we endure hardship, stay focused, and live as people under His loving authority. Let's pray as we close this morning.